Welcome to Are We There Yet? Transport into the Future. This is a series of programs that look at current issues and developments and what they mean for the transport we need, we want and what we can supply in the future. These programs are written and presented by David Brown. Laura Aston is a PhD candidate undertaking a research which is focusing on measuring the transport ridership performance, particularly from the built or various built environments. She has been a leader and was a chief organiser of the recent Student Leadership Summit held in Melbourne. Laura, thanks very much for your time. Thank you very much, David. Now, you started with a Bachelor of Environmental Engineering and you also had a double degree, a Bachelor of Arts. Environmental Engineering, what sort of subjects did that cover? Well, it's about as multidisciplinary as engineering gets. Uh, It falls under the Civil Engineering Department banner. But it also gives us the opportunity to study, to study a bit of economics, a bit of environmental law, mm. environmental policy. And then from the engineering department, you've got subjects ranging from fluid mechanics to structural engineering and those common civil engineering subjects. And then there are some, some special environmental engineering subjects that look at things like waste management and renewable technologies. So quite a, a, a wide range. When we hear the word environment, we often think of the atmosphere, yet it then takes on a much broader context, doesn't it? Where we live and what we do and and that then becomes... I guess the word sustainable comes into that uh, much more now than it has in the past. Absolutely. And something you learn early on, which I have to caveat it, that I did my environmental engineering degree very much out of order because I transferred into it after studying chemical engineering for a while and realising that wasn't for me. So I took all the chemical engineering type subjects first and then I went back to year one and did my environmental engineering subjects Mm. and learned about a conceptual framework for sustainability where at the very centre you've got the economy and then outside of that you've got society and then outside of society sits the environment and so we need to look after the environment to have a viable society and, and a viable economy. Was there some more radicals in that? I, I did an engineering degree and I think it was generally accepted, and this was a while ago, that that was a more conservative approach. Yet in some ways, aiming at the same thing, it's a little bit like people who are in the Air Force or the Army and, and people who are pacifists. They both want peace, but they see a different way about going to get it. And engineering is often how we build better things of often what we're doing now, whereas a lot of environmental issues are taking a broader perspective. Was that a little bit more of a radical in you? In me, definitely, and (laughs) certainly in a lot of my um, peers. But the degree itself was anything but radical. I mean, it was all about the... Um, physical scientific ways that you can achieve technologies and built form and have social structures that are at once beneficial for the environment and progressive so it was a very practical course it wasn't it certainly wasn't anything radical no and I'm not saying one is absolutely right or wrong yet is that an element, because you've been doing some work and you now have a, the TEM, is it, the, the engineers at Monash, was, is, or transport engineers, is that the one? Transport engineers at Monash, yeah, that's... 
from that engineering approach, I think having talked to a few of them there, it is a way of breaking out of a very structured engineering into a more social understanding, yet looking for practical solutions. Yeah, absolutely. Um, It's certainly something, it's certainly a degree for people who may be interested in the big picture and, and how sort of things work together to achieve physical outcomes, but which reconcile, you know, the, the legal aspects, the social aspects and the economic aspects. So, yeah, very much the case. Because it's always said of the engineer that they're very good at solving problems. We have to make sure they have the right problems to solve. <laughs> Do you still link strongly to the engineering faculty? Absolutely. My PhD is undertaken out of the Department of Civil Engineering. And in fact, the way that I got into my PhD was through my undergrad. As I said, environmental engineering is a sub-discipline of civil engineering. And because of that, I was able to take some units in transportation and undertake my honours research with Professor Graham Curry in transport. And I've forever been passionate about the role of public transport in facilitating sustainable mobility patterns and therefore sustainable cities, cities that give people the freedom to move around but don't necessitate large and sprawling land use that, you know, might encroach on biodiversity and that sort of thing. So... I'm currently undertaking my PhD in civil engineering and it has strong ties to transport modelling and transport engineering. And I'm a civil engineer too, again, quite a while ago. But it is an interesting approach to it. Do do you see what's going on, not just in engineering, but in your, your city and that? And do you find that you have a passion to think that we've got to do something better? Absolutely. I've always been a bit of an activist and uh, someone very wise once told me I I seem to make decisions as if the world's resting on my shoulders which is actually not a good thing <laughs> Got it. I, and I, I learned from a very prominent public transport researcher last week his name's Jarrett Walker he's just been visiting Melbourne he said those environmental types seem to think that everything is connected and that you can't answer one problem without addressing them all but Really, you have to focus on one thing and, and by doing that, sort of hope that you can chip away at the bigger problem. <laughs> but the, the thing about focusing on one thing is to have, as it were, the right measures for that. You're not, for example, just focusing on getting more vehicles down a road. You're focusing on how that does fit in to the broader pattern and what's the real target we should be aiming for. Well, my specific interest is in mode shift, getting people to use more public transport. And as part of that is is walking as well, because walking is essential to accessing public transport rather than using vehicles, uh, private vehicles. So single occupant cars that are they inequitably use the space that we have available in cities, basically, because you can move people, more people using less road space in public transport. I love your use of the word inequitable because in many ways a lot of passion and that is focused on one's own self-interest, yet there is a huge amount of research that says equity is a really key measure of any flourishing society. Absolutely. As you've mentioned, 
all the engineering disciplines aim to sort of move society forward. And often a criticism of the environmental viewpoint is that it forgets about, you know, basic needs of society and economy. But what my research interest boils down to is a question of, of equity. And so if we expect all of society in, in different countries and, and into the future, so into intergenerational, to have the same uh, access to mobility, then we need to think about conserving the environmental mm. framework and the space that we have available to us. Well, there's no point in moving around in an area that is constrained or causes you great difficulties. Uh, it It is moving around for a purpose, and that purpose has got to be something, as I say, that makes us flourish. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right, yes. Mm. The research that you're doing, it talks about, I believe, transit ridership, a performance of the built environment. Are yeah. you looking at different environments, built environments? Well, the built environment can be classified in a few different ways in terms of its relationship to public transport use. Conventionally, researchers talk about density, so uh, population density, commercial density, job density, diversity. Diversity refers to the different types of land uses that are co-located because if you have uniform land uses, then it implies that there's greater distances Mm. needed between different tasks that you might need to accomplish, like your home and and your work will tend to be further away if if land uses are very uniform. And finally, uh, design, urban design. So it's known from empirical research that certain design features are more amenable for pedestrians and and might favour public transport use, and certain types of urban design favour private automobile use. Now, those three variables, you can measure them in, in any city, in any country, and you'll find that the relationships always differ. Context is hugely important and culture, the culture of a city hugely differs. So, for example, you'd see a different relationship between the built environment and public transport ridership patterns in a country like the Netherlands than you would in a country uh, like the United States and different again to Australia. So absolutely, we look at different environments and expect to see different relationships, but we're always looking at within the framework of density, diversity, design, and there's some other variables too, but those are the the major three. So you're looking at various areas and looking at the resultant patterns of trips? Absolutely, that that's right. Mm. I love your idea of context. I spoke to a planner in Perth recently who's planning a new area, and he said that often specifications don't have context. And I think you've just said that about transport, that we can all have our theory about who should use and how they should use it, but if we don't understand the context, are you getting a better understanding of what the Australian psyche almost in context then of what it means for transport? That's a good question. Uh, It's not the focus of my research, um, understanding the mobility culture, you might call it, in Australia. What I am learning from my job, which is uh, a part-time role in the user-focused design branch in the Victorian government, is from the human-centred design perspective, not only is the context of a country important, but the context of a neighbourhood is important. So 
it's really hard to generalize and say the Australian psyche is one particular mm. thing. You actually, to get the optimum, out, optimum outcome, uh, you'd have to treat every instance, every new build of, for example, a, a train station or a level crossing removal as a unique context and, and understand the local psyche to really design for the, the best outcome. I think that's very important because quite often a perception of the overall psyche becomes a statement of faith. If you do this, this will invariably happen. Yet what you're saying is we have to be much more aware of the diversity within our urban and city and even rural areas. Yeah, and that's an exciting overlay that this new service design thinking approach brings to transport planning. Um, it's very new to combine design thinking with transportation planning. Victoria is not the first state to be doing this. Um, Transport for London have been doing it for a long time. Transport for New South Wales have a user-focused design framework as well that they use. So we're starting to understand that you need a, a nuanced approach to planning around public transport infrastructure to really get the best outcomes. And I shouldn't just say public transport. That applies to roads and pedestrian facilities and cycle facilities. Mm. As you know, my research is focused on public transport, but the same um, notion that, that context is important applies to other modes of, of transport as well. Service design, what sort of things might that encompass? Well, traditionally, human-centred design has applied to consumables, consumer products. But in the last few years, we've adapted human-centred design to service planning. Now, if you think of the Apple iPhone, hmm. that is one of that's the most memorable, and and I'll probably be told off for using this example, but it's the the most noteworthy example of where someone incredibly visionary, namely Steve Jobs, saw that you couldn't have a best-selling product unless you not only have the functional product, but you make it irresistible to use, and so Apple developed the user experience they focused on the user experience of the smartphone now we're applying that notion to service design and to transport planning to make sure that our transport services meet the needs of users and that our even our vehicles and our network is designed to be as convenient as possible and as easy to use as possible. I was talking to Dr Max Lay who said that uh, of the 19th century revolutions in transport, none of the people who invented it really understood how it was going to be used mm. to that extent. And I guess Steve Jobs and that made not only a functional product, but he made it sexy, mm. but it also integrated in with an evolving world of you know, instant contact and so on. So we might not fully understand it, but we have to be adaptable to the way people are moving and thinking in the broader sense. Yeah, uh, absolutely. That's, that's always going to be a challenge um, when typically transportation infrastructure and services are planned for a, a very long time horizon. It's, it's, Right now, we, we don't do a lot of scenario planning. This is just generally the world over because it's not feasible from a budget point of view to, to make a plan to reevaluate your transport network every five years or so. But that is the rate of change these days. So we have to try and be a bit more agile and address yeah changing context and changing needs. 
Bob Meyer, who's a planner from Sydney, recently said that's been our very great problem. He talked about the 1948 County of Cumberland plan, where we put so much energy into the plan that we weren't prepared to even think about changes that might happen. And we have a census every five years, and when the census came out and said, well, your projections of immigration were totally wrong, we, the royal we, were very slow to adapt to it. We have to be adapting to it, and perhaps you talked about computer modelling, that perhaps we have to be models that are a little bit more generic but quicker rather than trying to model to the nth degree. Look, that's not my area of expertise. It's certainly a challenge that I'm very much aware of. From a human-centered design perspective, we think about what users need from their transport network and we apply a four-stage process to understanding those needs, coming up with possible scenarios and, and plans and then prototyping and testing so you develop some physical or, or at very least virtual reality manifestations of your mm. service or your public transport vehicle or the intersection that you're planning and then you have users interact with that and give you some feedback. So rather than taking a modelling approach, it's a, a trial and error, a prototype and testing approach. That's ultimately what um, human-centred design is to try and find uh, an outcome that best satisfies what the users need. In some ways the modelling is not to predict the future but to just try and give some idea of what variations might mean. What are the four stages? Of human-centred design? Hmm. Uh, it's research, ideation, prototyping and testing. I'm sure I've not said them exactly right but essentially you, you conduct research and, and understand what users how they interact with the environment and and what they what they need to to be satisfied with their transport experience then you generate lots of ideas and designs to try and meet those needs you develop some samples some prototypes and then you test them and and see how the users feel how satisfied they are when they interact with those and whether they meet the needs that you identified back in the research stage. And then you iterate. So it entails multiple iterations to really arrive at the final design. Mm. But what that process does is mitigate future risk that you've designed something that is not user-friendly. And then you might realize that several years down the track when you're not able to to fix the problem, whereas by taking a little bit of extra time and budget to do it uh, up front, you can offset that risk. And, and not only offset the risk, but you can actually develop something that is optimal for the users and therefore increase the outcomes that you're aiming for. Prevention is better than cure. Exactly, exactly. And experience throughout the world has shown that there's a lot of financial savings to be had by taking this approach you're very idealistic and that's lovely <laughs> do you feel confident or do, what do you think are some of the barriers ahead of people like yourself young dynamic and and thoughtful yes idealistic that's a word that's often been used to to describe me <laughs> well i mean idealism comes with that weakness that i mentioned earlier where you see problems as all connected and fail to identify the one question that can be targeted and answered. So 
for me personally uh, and perhaps for other people who are idealistic, it's being discerning about what questions are worth tackling and, and really knowing what is feasible to, to achieve. Yeah, that's very important, isn't it? It's a lovely comment because most times if you get a bit radical or so on, you tend to try and embrace everything, yet you're clearly saying you've got to work on things that you can can bring about a change with. That's Yeah, that's right. When you look back at your studies and your PhD, well, not at your PhD, as you're still doing that, your studies then... Would you have liked to have seen some other subjects or some other material in that core bachelor degree work? Sometimes I think that I would have preferred studying urban planning. For a few years, I did think that. My PhD has very strong urban planning overlays. And in fact, I've recently brought a new supervisor into my team of academic supervisors who comes from the Monash Art Design and Architecture Department and and he's an urban planning professor. But I guess as time's worn on, I've realised that coming from the environmental background gives me more of a quantitative and unique perspective than I might have had if I'd studied urban planning right from the outset. So in some ways, I can see how I might have reached the, the end goal quicker if I'd been able to study urban planning, if I'd chosen that. But then again, I think that I've got a wider skill set from having taken the indirect course. That's often been said of some of the courses, is that if you get a chance, we were talking to one of your colleagues, one of the students, undergraduate students, the idea of being able to have to work with projects with people whose main degree isn't engineering, one in one case was architecture, was an expanding thing. It doesn't mean what you're studying is wrong. It just means that you get benefit from an interaction over a broader field. Absolutely. And I think interdisciplinary research or work is so important and so beneficial, but it's it's quite hard to do because what I find is that um, particular disciplines or particular fields of research have their established methods And once you start bringing in multiple disciplines, you can no longer stick to the way that it's done. And breaking new ground is extremely difficult because basically there have been hundreds and and even thousands of incredibly intelligent and dedicated researchers in a particular field who have developed a certain methodology. So if you want to do something new and different, then, you know, you have to work extremely hard to make it robust and, and valid. Is that a question of a process or a, and or a question of the content? For example, in engineering, we did an awful lot of work on capacity flow and so on, whereas someone then brings on saying, well, getting more people down the street may not be our desire anyway. It's not to say you were doing it wrong. It's just to say your focus is. I guess it's a hard balance between what is process and what is a new direction or a new idea, which might still use their process, but in a new way. Yeah, that's right. So you might be looking at trying to use the same process, but the the content may be different. So if, I guess trying to think of an example. Uh, it's a case of not condemning what people have done in the past, but broadening or focusing or whatever in the direction of knowing where we're moving in the future. I think the best example I can think of is 
applying design thinking to urban planning, whereas urban planning and engineering, they've kind of, they go together quite nicely. So that's, it's actually quite an established pairing. But if you start to bring in the the design thinking, which I've talked about earlier in terms of human-centered design, and you start looking for solutions to transport and land use problems, where you take a the four-step approach I mentioned earlier, that's unprecedented, or at least it's not well-developed. So you have to do a lot of work to prove that it's valid and to fit the the content, which is your your land use and your transport patterns, into this methodology, which is typically reserved for consumer products. But nonetheless, having that methodology is very important, or having a methodology, because you can then become very one-dimensional. Very earlier in our, our chat, you mentioned density, and a lot of people from the transport side have seen that in a very one-dimensional sense. More people means we can justify, you know, more people in an area is more likely to justify a public transport service. Yet density alone is not diversity. You know, the point if you had a whole pile of people living there but no jobs, then you your point earlier, you've got to travel further. That's so right. so there needs to be a process to consider to, to consider those fors and against consequences and outcomes <laughs> that's the exciting challenge of transportation planning and modeling that there's always a trade-off and you raise a, a wicked problem there david um <laughs> wicked <laughs> I, I, I well it has been used <laughs> well yes there's a, there's a very strong dependence um between every aspect of of transport and influential factors that decide how we travel around. They're all interdependent. The built environment variables I mentioned, density, diversity and design, their their impact on mode choice absolutely varies depending on the combination of the three of them. So yes, it's there's no single truth about their their influence other than to say they generally increase public transport use and decrease single occupant vehicle or private vehicle use. When will you finish your PhD? In about a year and a half's time. I'm, I'm just over halfway through. PhDs go for three years, typically. Often there's grounds to extend a month or several months, uh, but I foresee finishing mine in a year and a half. You helped organise the Student uh, Leadership Summit. Was that a practical exercise in management? Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Practical in the sense that it was applied, yes. (laughs) Practical in the sense that I didn't bite off more than I could chew, no. (laughs) Yeah, it was a fantastic experience and a very challenging one. Came about for for many reasons. Um, Personally, having had good experiences at conferences, and having had the privilege as an undergraduate or recently graduated student to go to a conference to present my honours research, I thought that it would be wonderful for students of transport and related disciplines in Australia to have access, have exposure to the conference environment so they might see the, the field of transportation as an, as an exciting career path. Now that I work in the industry, I hear all the time that there's a skills shortage and a even a graduate shortage in transportation. And I just thought, well, there's a bit of a disconnect here because 
you know, there's lots of students studying civil engineering and lots of job opportunities if only they could see what's on offer. And I thought a conference was a way to achieve that. And what's more, there was already a model available for running such a conference because the ITE, the Institute of Transportation Engineers, have been staging student leadership summits across North America for several years now. So it was a case of marrying the two ideas, the the thought of having a conference and the, the model of the student leadership stum- summits and bringing that to Melbourne. But I thought it, it was a broadening experience for the young undergraduates who went there because, among other things, you had a developer talk who wasn't just a nasty... who wasn't just, he wasn't at all a mm-hmm. nasty... I mean, make that very clear in there to make a quick buck and leave they were a person that was in an area and had a long-term lease and so they had an active interest in that area working well would you agree that the young people really blossomed with that sort of an input absolutely i think the the speakers at the conference gave really diverse perspectives about transportation and i think that was reflective of how the industry needs to work in the applied sense that you've got all different types of stakeholders from developers, local government, state government, planners, transport engineers, and many, many more designers to name another another field who all have to work together to develop the best transport network. So I think that came across for the students. We did hope to attract students from diverse backgrounds, but Ultimately, the majority of, of students who attended were from an engineering background. No harm done to have them exposed to the, the range of stakeholders involved in transport. But what would be good to see in future years is students attending the Student Leadership Summit from other transport disciplines. So, as I mentioned, planning and design and even development as well. Well, that can evolve because you have a long-term vision of, uh, and I know you've done a huge amount of work, but others will take this up and make it an ongoing exercise rather than just one nice sing- singular exercise. Yeah, it's it's a long-term vision to involve students in the profession and to help them develop their networks and, and see transportation as an exciting career path. Someone wise once told me that transportation is not a discipline per se, but it's an application of a wide range of skills. So, I mean, that's reflected in the fact that universities don't typically teach transport. There's no degrees called transport, but you study it as a stream within another discipline, such as civil engineering. Finally, you did a major in French, but you did a minor in politics. And the Mm. SLS, Student Leadership Summit, was in a town that was not a marginal seat, and so Mm. politics didn't have as much impact positively as it might. Was your studies of politics an important part of your education? Definitely. I work part-time in the the public sector, and I've actually... I undertook an internship while I was studying as well. I've always been interested in policy, policy policy-making, from a theoretical or applied perspective, I guess it doesn't really matter, but being able to study it, I think, helped me consider the public service as a career path and then ultimately find my way into a, a job in the public sector. Do you have thoughts of a broader role? 
Do you have political heroes, ones who have made it to an elected position because, or some might say despite being young, possibly educated in something other than law, and of course irrespective of their gender? I'm not asking you to take sides in the political debate. Oh, look, I'd be lying if if I if I didn't admit that the idealist in me is, has sometimes said that. But yeah, <laughs> uh, it's not a it's not an aspiration I hold at this present time. So, <laughs> well, I didn't want to put you on the spot or anything. I've enjoyed having our chat. I think it's very important to hear the passion and the ideas and the directions that uh, our relatively young people are taking. And uh, I appreciate your time. Uh, Laura, thank you very much. Thank you, David. Thanks very much. And that's Laura Aston, who is studying for a PhD, and is also working in the public service, particularly at the moment in the area of public transport and transit ridership and what is involved in encouraging, getting and delivering that. Are We There Yet? Transport Into the Future is produced by Driven Media. Driven Media specialise in communicating technical and scientific information to professionals and the public and also facilitates planning and behaviour change in groups and organisations. You can send comments or suggestions to feedback at drivenmedia.com.au. All the participants have agreed to the recording and distributing of their comments.